from Genesis. So if you'd like to turn to chapter, it's the first book in the Bible, friends. So yeah, turn to, turn to Genesis 15. <laughs> thought you'd find that easy. Thanks, Michelle. 15 <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all here. I'll leave you to find the page numbers. I haven't been enough, diligent enough to check all those. But yes, as Pete said, it's first up. So hopefully you'll flick through to chapter 15. All right. Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. <clears throat> the birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, 
Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And then 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to do what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah took his wife, sorry, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Father, uh, thank you so much for this um, intriguing passage from Genesis 15 and 16. And uh, we do pray now that as we open up your word that uh, you would be helping us to understand, and more than that, that you would be shaping our minds and our hearts, that we would be those who have faith uh, in what Jesus has done for us and your great promise of eternal life. We ask these things now in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. 
Uh, I wonder if you have ever been in a situation where uh, something which you've been really hoping for, and it seemed like a very, you know, you've been very confident in that hope, and then it seems to be slipping away. Ever felt that? Well, that was something which a uh, cricket team uh, in Surface Paradise experienced just last weekend. Uh, it was the final over of the match, so six balls to go, and they only needed five runs to win, which they thought, no worries. Five runs off six balls, too easy. <laughs> and then they lost a wicket off the first ball, which kind of, you know, sort of uh, reduced their confidence. Uh, then they lost a wicket off the second ball. Well, anxiety started to uh, <laughs> emerge. Then they lost a wicket off the third ball and the fourth ball and the fifth. They, they lost six wickets off six balls and lost the match <laughs> by five runs. <clears throat> it made news around the world. Can you imagine how they felt? I mean, you know, this was not just a hope which sort of slowly slipped away. This was dramatic. <laughs> this was a collapse of hope. This was edge of your seat kind of stuff. Which I think is one of the reasons why we love watching sport, isn't it? Because it's not just the thrill of uh, seeing our hopes increasing throughout the match. It's also the anxiety of seeing our hopes vanishing, uh, which keeps us on the edge of our seats. It's human emotion. And it's also true in uh, some of the more serious aspects of life as well, when what is at stake is more than just who wins a game of cricket, when something which we have been hoping for, something which we have been banking on, a promise which we've been given, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And so we begin to doubt. And our doubt then grows to anxiety. And our anxiety into fear. That what we have been hoping for, that what we've been banking on, is not going to happen. will come to nothing. And which is something which we... Uh, begin to see a hint of uh, in the life of uh, one of the uh, key people in the Bible, and that is Abraham, or as he was known at this point in his life, Abraham, Abraham, because in Genesis chapter 15, and you might want to have that open in front of you, Abraham had an important hope which seemed, at least humanly speaking, to be slipping away. Now, if you were here last Sunday, uh, which I wasn't, uh, but you may recall that uh, Abraham's uh, nephew Lot had uh, found himself in the crossfire between some warring kings. You remember that? And uh, in that situation, he was trapped and he needed to be rescued. And uh, Abra Abraham was able to do that rescue. He successfully rescued Lot lot by going into battle and defeating some of those kings with only a small force of 300 men and God. And so when we come to chapter 15 verse 1, 
How would we expect Abraham to be feeling after achieving that? Triumphant? Victorious? Full of joy? Uh, well, have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. After this, that is after the rescue of Lot, uh, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So what's Abraham feeling? Well, he had actually, by the way, just refused to accept some material reward for what he'd done from the king of Sodom. He refused to accept any reward from Sodom because he'd only helped that king for the sake of rescuing his son, uh, his nephew, um, from uh, those other kings. And so he received no reward. He accepted no reward from Sodom. It's an evil kingdom. And so here the Lord assures Abraham that he does have a reward and that his reward is God himself. And that's true in so many aspects of life, isn't it? that God is his own reward. But Abram is anxious because he didn't need to get that reward from the king of Sodom. He already has wealth, but what is it that he doesn't have? What's causing him the anxiety? What he doesn't have is a child. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have someone who will inherit all that he has. Now, uh, earlier on in Genesis chapter 12, God had made some uh, very important promises to Abram. Uh, some of you may remember those from when we looked at it last year. And those promises were that one day Abraham would have three things. He would have a people, a land and a blessing. A people, a land and a blessing. And, and when God gave him that promise... Abram was 75 years old. And you know, to have a people, you need to have descendants. To have descendants, you need to have a, a son. And now, time is ticking away. Now, in Abram's day, uh, if a man did not have a son, uh, he could uh, adopt one of his servants to become his heir. And that's his fear, as his hope for a son from his own body, from the body of his wife, was slipping away. And so how does God respond? Well, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, that's Eliezer of Damascus, uh, the slave boy in his household, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Have you ever been out in the bush on a clear night and uh, taken the 
trouble to lift up your eyes to the heavens? Ever done that? It's awesome, isn't it? To, to marvel at, at the Milky Way. You know, thousands and thousands, countless stars just filling the night sky. And the closest one to us actually being 40 trillion kilometres away. It's awesome, isn't it? Incredible. Look up, said God to Abraham. Try counting the stars because that is how your offspring shall be. What a great promise. What an incredible promise. And, you know, friends, if God can create the galaxy, then why would not be able to to, why would God not be able to create a child from an elderly couple? And so in verse 6, we're told that Abram believed the Lord and, and God credited it to, it to him as righteousness. You see that? Now, this is one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. Um, why is that the case? Well, let me explain. Uh, do you ever hear non-Christians saying... I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. I was reading about a you know, famous movie star just recently who's got cancer and uh, he was saying, I'm not afraid of dying, not afraid of it at all. And people think that's great, that's wonderful, it's really terrific that he feels that way. It may sound nice, but friends, death should be terrifying <laughs> for us. It should be frightening for us. Because after death comes judgment. And our greatest concern in life should be this question. How can I, a sinner, be made right with the holy God? That's the big question, isn't it? A couple of years back, a lady uh, only, with only days uh, left in her life uh, wanted me to come and see her and speak to her. And when I did, did, I discovered that she was frightened. She was terrified, not about dying and not about death, but about what comes next, about the judgment which she knew was imminent for her. Now, many people hope that they will pass God's judgment by simply being good enough, as if somehow we can, by our good deeds, that we can cancel out our sin. And be righteous, that is to be declared to be right in God's sight. But how did Abram become righteous? Well, we're told that God credited righteousness to him. It was like God went and put that into his bank account. Uh, he credited to him, not because he had worked for it, not because he was good enough, not because he somehow deserved to be righteous but simply because he believed. He trusted God. He took God at his word. He trusted the promise that God had given him that so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what is the most significant promise that God has made to us well how about the big one you know the one that gives us certain hope how about that the blood of Jesus pays for our sin so that we can be forgiven 
so that we can be made right with God forever. That's the big one, isn't it? That's the promise. And how do we need to respond to that? <laughs> By trying to some, somehow earn our righteousness? No. Like Abraham, by believing God's promise about Jesus, by trusting in him. Uh, which was, by the way, the very good news that I got to share with that lady uh, just days before she died. Now, I wonder if you have ever heard of the gospel as being referred to as the new covenant and uh, you've been a little bit... Um, unclear about what that actually means what does it mean that the gospel is the new covenant uh, what is a covenant well in genesis chapter 15 god having made that promise to abraham uh, and abraham having believed and declared to be righteous god made a covenant with abraham for having assured him of the of the promise of a son God then reminded him about the promise of the land. Check it out in verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? He still seems a bit anxious, doesn't he? It's very human, very human. How will I know? that I will gain possession, ask Abraham. Now, when you and I, when we make an important promise, or when we come to a, an agreement with someone, a really important agreement with someone, how do we do it? What's, what is our, how do we guarantee uh, what we've said? Uh, well, normally we sign a contract, don't we? We sign a contract. But in the ancient world, some commitments required more than just a signature. Like, for example, when two kings had been at war with one another but they made a treaty with one another, uh, what they did was they cut a covenant. And this is how it went. Uh, first of all, some animals would be slaughtered. Uh, then, next, uh, the secondly, those slaughtered animals would have their carcasses sliced down the middle. And then the halves of each of the carcasses would be heaped in, in, into two piles, facing each other. And then after declaring their promises, both kings would walk between the two piles of slaughtered flesh. Now, why would they do that? Well, it was a dramatic way of saying... If I do not fulfil the promises that I have made to you today, may that which has happened to these animals happen to me. <laughs> may, may I be slaughtered. May I be slaughtered. May, I be, may, my car, may my carcass be sliced in two and left to rot in the sun and be eaten by scavengers. I reckon that's a bit more interesting than just signing a contract, don't you? <laughs> Adds a little bit more, uh, <clears throat> more gravity to the situation. And it's why they called it cutting a covenant. And it's what God did for Abraham 
in verses 9 through to 19. Except for two differences. And the first one is this. After Abraham had slaughtered the animals and uh, <clears throat> sliced them in two and arranged their carcasses appropriately, uh, Abraham, we're told, fell into a deep sleep. And in that sleep, God gave him a vision, a, a long-term glimpse of how God was going to fulfil his promise, a long-term glimpse into the future of Abraham's descendants uh, uh, that uh, what would happen for them before they inherited the promised land and why it would take 400 years, uh, including slavery in Egypt and including waiting until the full sin of the people who lived in the, in the land had reached its height so that as uh, Joshua led uh, Israel into uh, conquering the land, they would be enacting God's judgment on the sin of the Amorites and the others who lived in that land. Now, that's the first difference, the vision. And the second difference is seen in verse 17. I want to read that for you. It says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So, darkness, a smoking pot, blazing torch, passing through. Who, who do you think that might represent? Well, the Lord. Uh, what we see here is that it was the Lord who passed between the sacrificed animals. It was the Lord who did that and it was the Lord alone we're not told that Abraham uh, passed through the slaughtered, between the slaughtered animals. Abraham didn't do that because what did Abraham contribute to this covenant? What did he bring to the table? Nothing. It was all from God. It was a unilateral covenant. It was God saying to you, I will give you a people a land and a blessing. Just trust me. Just trust me. And it helps us to understand the Last Supper, doesn't it? When Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you. For what do we contribute to our salvation, friends? Nothing. Just the need to be saved, our sin. We contribute nothing. And so here, by cutting a covenant with Abraham, God was making it absolutely clear in, in the way that an ancient man would say, yes, this is actually the clearest possible demonstration of, how, of his guarantee, by cutting a covenant. It was the clearest possible way of saying to Abraham, you can trust me. I'll keep my promise. But things were not so clear for Abram's wife, Sarai. Now, Sarai knew that uh, God had promised a son, but after waiting for 10 years, she had a plan to speed it up. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. 
So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah had said. And so after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And the idea being that Hagar's child would then be legally Sarai's child and she would um, uh, build her family uh, that way. So was Sarai trusting in God? No, not really. Or Abram? I mean, did he say to her, no, 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 hang on, hold on a moment, Sarai, we will, we will wait. We will wait for God to fulfil his promise. No. He just went along with her, like Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, and God's plan for sex, friends, uh, is uh, uh, for sex and marriage is one man and one woman together for life. That's God's plan for sex and for marriage. And when we mess around with that, guess what? Things get messy. <laughs> Things get messy. And so in verse 4, surprise, surprise, it seems that Hagar, uh, now pregnant, feels a connection with, um, with Abram. I mean, he took her to bed. She's now carrying his child. And it changed the relationship between her and Sarai. She began to despise Sarai. She had done what Sarai couldn't do. How does Sarai respond to that? <laughs> well, in verse 5, she blames Abram. <laughs> uh, check it out, verse 5. You, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. And Abram? Well, in verse 6, he just puts it back on her. She's your maidservant. You deal with it. <laughs> And so Sarai mistreated Hagar, and Hagar fled. Uh, she left. Uh, she fled for her homeland, Egypt. Uh, we know that that's where she was heading because in verse 7, we're told that she rested at a watering hole in the desert, which is on the road to an Egyptian city uh, called Shur. She rested at a watering hole. A watering hole which gave her life, <laughs> not just physically, quenching her thirst, but spiritually as well, because God had not forgotten Hagar. And God sees Hagar, he sees who she is, he sees what her need is, and he loves her. And he loved her by sending an angel who promised that she too would have many descendants, <laughs> um, some challenging descendants, <laughs> but that she would have descendants, that she would have a son. And so she uh, returned to Abram and Sarai and gave birth to her son Ishmael, who would not become the heir of Abraham. Wow, what a story, eh? Um, so what are we to make of all of this? Well, um, when Abram first received the promise of God uh, about descendants, he was 
He was at the ripe old age of 75. Um, and he trusted God. But he had to learn a lot about what trusting God actually meant. Uh, as uh, 75 became 76 and 77 and 78 and 70, as each year rolled along, and at least, uh, you know, humanly speaking, his, uh, his hope uh, seemed to be slipping. He was 86 when Ishmael was born, and he would have to wait till 100 before Isaac, the son of promise, uh, was born to Sarai. And it sounds impossible, doesn't it? In fact, that is the very point. That is the point which Abram had to learn, the point which we need to learn. Sometimes, uh, when, you know, God's promises uh, just don't happen in our timing. And when God allows that to happen, uh, it forces us to trust him more. It, it sifts our trust. It helps us to grow in our trust. And it, it teaches us that God is true to his promises despite what seems to be humanly impossible. And so I wonder, uh, do you ever feel unsure about God's love for you? Ever feel that way? Uh, when you hear about the, the certain hope of forgiveness and eternal life, does it always seem certain to you? How can we be sure? How can we be confident? What is the guarantee? Well, it's because God cut a covenant. Not by sacrificing a cow or a goat and a sheep, but by sacrificing his own son on the cross to pay for our sins. A new covenant in his blood poured out for you poured out for you. Sometimes in the ups and downs of life, we may be tempted to uh, doubt God's love for us and, and even to, 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 to doubt and to wonder about his promise of eternal life. <laughs> and we can even uh, try taking things into our own hands by, uh, some people do, trying to, uh, to earn uh, God's love and God's salvation. When what we need to do is to look back to the cross, to look back to the new covenant cut in the blood of Jesus. When you think about it, what clearer proof could there be of God's love for us than that he demonstrated his love by sending his own son to die for us. That whilst we were yet sinners, says Paul, that Christ died for you. What greater proof of God's love is that? And what greater guarantee uh, is there of eternal life than that not only did Christ die for our sins, that he was raised again for our justification? What more evidence do we want of eternal life than the resurrection of Jesus, 
from the dead. <laughs> yeah, that cricket team on the Gold Coast, they <laughs> saw their hope slipping away pretty quickly. But if you trust in Christ, your hope is guaranteed by the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in awe of your faithfulness. Father, that the promises that you make are extraordinary, the promise of free forgiveness and eternal life, something which we cannot achieve by ourselves, and something which the world cannot offer. Father, we pray that uh, we would be people through who through the ups and downs and the spiritual battle of life, uh, that would, we would always be coming back to the cross of Jesus, uh, that in his uh, trusting that his death, for our, death on the cross has paid for our sins, that his resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of eternal life. And Father, as we look uh, at the, and contemplate those promises, we pray that we would live our lives in a way that is trusting of you and uh, a life that is lived in obedience to you. And we pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen.